We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hey friends, welcome to the Equestrian Podcast. My name is Bethany Lee, and this is episode number five. Max Corcoran is a super groom. She is incredible and is a freelance groom for some of the top riders in the world. Not to mention, she will also be the new president of the United States Eventing Association, USEA, in 2020. But there's no coincidence why Max has this new role. If you're looking for a lesson in having a selfless attitude in the equestrian industry, you're in the right place. Hello, how you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Thank you. Awesome. Well, I am so happy you're on the Equestrian Podcast today. Well, thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Um, So I would love to talk about how you got into the role you are today as um, one of the industry's top grooms. How how did that get started? Well, I... Uh, that's it's a good question. <laughs> you never really totally know. There wasn't actually a defining moment, but I think, I think it was when I was a kid growing up, um, up in, I grew up in Massachusetts and, um, the barn where I was, I, my family didn't have, they're not horse people at all. We, I just sort of got bit by the bug because my best friend was taking riding lessons in fifth grade. And so I wanted to too, cause that's what you did. You did what your friends did. Right. Um, and for me to afford to keep riding and doing all that, I was sort of the barn rat and would tack all the horses up and, and sort of work in the barn and do that. And, I think that sort of was the initial sort of thing for me to look after the horses because I kind of like hanging out with them sometimes a lot more than I like hanging out with people. (laughs) (laughs) If that makes sense. But, um, you know, down the road, everybody wants to be really good and they want to, you know, everybody, I'm going to go to the Olympics. This is my passion. But not everybody gets to do that on a horse. So for me, it was just a way to, to be at the top level and and travel the world was to, to be a groom, um, and get to see things and be a part of it and, you know, see everything. So that, that, you know, and then I just became more and more passionate about it and horse care and looking after them. And, um, and you realize how important actually your role is to the riders as a top groom, um, that, you know, it doesn't actually happen without you. And with, you know, there's a team that goes together. So you're a very important part of that team. Yeah. So at, at what point did you transition? I mean, do you still ride today? Oh, I ride sometimes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll ride, you know, it, you know, cause I freelance now. So that's part of my job sometimes is that people ask if I can ride. And, um, as I say, I don't ride anything that buck spins or rears, um, <laughs> because I'm not the bravest anymore. Um, uh, I, you know, I grew up riding bad horses. So, um, I, um, yeah, I, I do ride, um, which is fun, but I, I, you know, I rode maybe through the training level. Um, and then, you know, on dares and bets, I've done a couple other horse trials throughout the years, but that's sort of been the maximum of what I've done. Um, I love the competition. I don't, I, I, you know, I'm competitive. I just, I personally don't want to compete. Got it. Yeah. Um, so at what age did you realize that you wanted to make grooming a career path? 
Um, well, I knew when I was a kid, but I didn't really, um, I, I really loved it. And it was one of those things I remember as a kid, we were all saying, oh, we're going to go and we're going to go to the Olympics. We're going to go groom at the Olympics. And this is going to be so fun. There's a small group of us. We gr I grew up riding at this great barn in South Hamilton, Massachusetts called Pine Grove Stables. And we did a lot of fox hunting and some low level eventing. And there was about six or eight of us that were sort of barn rats um that would help hang out together and that was sort of our thing and um you know we always wanted to do it then but you know school gets going and you know your parents tell you that you need to go to university and you need to do this and horses aren't a real job and all that so i did that and i um you know and then i i when i first finished i went to northeastern in boston and i played ice hockey there so that was sort of pulled my world away from the horses for a bit because that's fairly intense at that level sure. um and then i finished that and i worked for mark donovan who's now a show jumping course designer for a couple of years and then went back to school worked for mike plum for a bit and then it was time mom said to me it's it's time for you to get a real job so i actually worked in downtown boston for five years as a associate stockbroker um which was very very different and then i just i decided that i needed to make the change um i um knew a really great guy named Jim Stamets that lived up in Massachusetts that sort of offered me the financial stability to um, leave my job. I, and I needed to move on. I just was going to work in the dark and coming home in the dark made it very, uh, not a very nice life yeah. for me. I just, that's just something that really bothered me. Um, and so he offered me the position to run his farm and, and groom for him full time. And that was really fun. Um, and I sort of got really really into it then because he had so much success that summer that I was working for him and he unfortunately died in his sleep that fall. He had a heart condition. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's when I got, I was, you know, unluckily, but luckily transferred with Ballymore. I was asked to go travel with her to Karen and David O'Connor's to get her settled in. And I was only meant to be there for about four months just to get her settled in and then carry on with my world. And I, you know, ended up staying for 11 years. So hmm. that was, <laughs> that <Yeah>. was that. <laughs> yeah kind of a wild ride. Totally. Um, so where, where would you say that you learned a lot of your skill set? I mean, obviously a lot of it has to be on the job and through time and experience, but, um, was there a particular place or person that you learned, um, learned what you know now from? specific person, but I, I ask a lot of questions. You can, uh, you can ask all the vets and farriers and everybody that I've worked with. Yeah. Um, and you, you do, you sort of, you watch and you can learn and you do all that kind of stuff. And, um, it's pretty cool. Um, our, you know, to be able to continue learning and the, I think the industry itself just continues to learn, um, and ask questions and do things better. So it's kind of, we're pretty lucky in that, in that circumstance. Um, but, you know, there's obviously there's been a ton of people along the way that have have helped me and taught me. And, um, yeah, I mean, all the people that I've ever worked for, they've taught me something. You you learn something from everybody, don't you? Whether it's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, but you you learn a ton from it all. Um, but there I don't I can't say that there was one specific hero in my life that really helped me along. It's just it's been a conglomerate of a lot of people which is kind of cool. I mean, it was interesting. That's just this, this world that we live in. It's amazing who the horses allow you to meet along the way, whether it's, you know, top farriers and vets or the people, some of the people that own these horses have these massive corporations or, you know, people that you would never meet on a normal day-to-day -day basis. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, 
So what's the, what is the craziest thing that's happened while you have been on the job where you've really had to problem solve, um, kind of like off the, off the top of your head? Mm. Um, well, you know, there's, Oh God, <laughs> it's like every day, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's pretty much every day, you know, because, you know, plans change and stuff, you know, every, uh, you know, with horses, it's always plan A, plan B, plan C, plan C3, plan C4, plan C5, plan D. So I, I don't know if there's not, there's, there's so many things that you got to uh, keep aware of. And, you know, it's, I think one of those, one of the things I'm Karen and David for sure taught me was to, you know, when it's thinking off the top of your head is, you know, notice what's not right. You know, you can see, come and look at the horses out in their paddocks every day and you see, okay, they're all there, but it's, it's learning how to notice what's not right rather than having that quick glance and seeing that they're all there. So that actually is something that they taught me, but I, I don't know if there was necessary specific day. <laughs> I think they all blend in right now. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, obviously, there's times when you have tragedies on the day that are, mm. you know, horrible things that happen, and so you have to think on the top of your head horses that get cast or do something like the the day that Theodore O'Connor died. That was a terrible day, and you did have to think off, and you had to be brave and strong and 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 take care of business before you could take care of yourself. You know, that's mm-hmm. one of the big things. So, um, you know, it's a very very selfless industry uh, or needs to be a very selfless industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I don't know a ton about, uh, the cross country area of venting, but I know that there is a cooling down process. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that or what you, what your role is in that yeah. cooling down process? Yeah, absolutely. That's actually one of the most important things, um, for the, for the event horses is their recovery, Um, especially at a big three-day event because, you know, the cross-country is done, but they still need to trot up the next day. Um, you know, have another horse inspection and they also have to show jump. So what, what happens in that finish area is really, really critical. Um, a lot of it is planning ahead. Um, is it hot? Is it cold? Is it this? Is it that? You also have to know your horse. Is your horse going to be excited in the finished area? Is he going to be, some horses just get very tired. They get very overwhelmed by the situation. Um, so a lot of that is, you know, you're trying to get them, you know, once they come in, you're trying to make them, um, as good as they were before they started, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So, um, Again, you know, figuring out the conditions and stuff. It, basically, what happens in the finish area, these horses have just galloped for 10, 10 to 12 minutes straight, and they're very, very hot, and they're very, um, a lot of times can be quite tired. Um, and so our job is to get them cooled down and to get them recovered as quickly as possible. Um, and then typically the aftercare of that part when we're icing legs and sometimes giving them IV fluids and, and walking them and making sure that they're uh, feeling as well as they can, it's, it's the most critical part of, I would say it's, you know, it's where the riders really look to us more than any time to be the leader of, of the aftercare. If that makes sense. Um, you know, we got to get water on them, water off of them, get their temperature down, keep them moving. Um, and it all can get really quite intense. Um, especially, you know, when the other thing that's a big deal for us is when that horse comes across the finish line, we need to see if there's any cuts or scratches or, um, if they've got all their shoes on, Mm -hmm. um, you know, how are they looking in their eye? How much work do we have to do? Um, you know, that, all that stuff too. So as you're cooling them out, we can sort of, um, triage any, situation that might come up 
you know, mm-hmm. it's like, is the foot, you know, so he's lost a shoe. Is the foot look like it's in good condition? Okay, good. Then we can, you know, that sh- that foot wrapping that foot back up can wait a little while. Is the foot really, you know, all torn up? And do we need? To, oh, yep. No, we got to get that a wrap on that foot straight away so they're not walking sore on a foot that's all ripped up anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's all that that goes into it. So it's a fairly um, intense process. And how how long would you say that process is? A lot of it actually depends on the level you're competing, whether it's, you know, at the lower levels or the upper levels, but a four-star horse or, you know, what will next year, it's all confusing, will now become a Mm -hmm. five-star. Those horses, typically the first 10 minutes are, are pretty, um, pretty, not, it's, I wouldn't say chaotic, but that's the most intense part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, It usually takes about about 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes for those horses to sort of get, come down to a heart rate and a temperature where it's acceptable to leave the finish area. Um, and there are vets typically at the big competitions, there are vets that are there monitoring their, um, you know, all their, the TPRs and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. But it's, um, you know, 10 minutes is sort of when, if you have a very fit horse that will recover quickly, especially at the lower levels, 10 minutes is sort of, um, is, is a normal thing. Um, and a lot of vets sometimes will know that a horse gets very, very excited and they're not going to cool out in the finish area because there's so much going on. So a lot of times they'll just dismiss you and send you back to the stables to to continue doing your work there. Got it. Got it. So, yeah, it's really a really a case by case situation. Yeah, and, exactly. Um, you really need to know your horse um, to kind of evaluate that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so you said that you primarily are doing freelance work um, at this point in time. Um how how do you um how do you manage that with um i mean you you have i'm sure other situations in the past where you know these horses so well from working with them so much um how do you do this um kind of freelance work where you maybe don't know the animal as much well the freelance the freelancing i actually I've enjoyed a bit because I get you get to know a lot more people, a lot more horses too. Yeah. But I ask a lot of questions when I get there. You know, yeah. r- right down to you know, um, what, what's he like? Can I, you know, does he need? You know, ev- everything. You know, I've been bit by enough horses grooming them <laughs> and stuff. So he's like, does he need to be tied up? No. Okay. Mm-hmm. Good. Does he? You know, what's he like out on the hand walk? What's he like here? Does that, you know, how sensitive is he? What does he cool out like? You know, how many does he run hot or cold with a blankets at night because you know there's some horses that you just don't know i mean there's some uh, what i would think would be normal some horses are like oh my god i'm dying it's so yeah. hot yeah you know yeah. and then some horses are just they need an extra rug so i ask all those questions um pretty much straight away and it's nice now that i've been doing it for a bit i sort of freelance a lot for the same people now which is great mm-hmm. so I've, I've gotten to know the horses a bit yeah. um and which is kind of, it's fun that way. Cause then I get to, you know, there are people that don't have full-time grooms. Um, but when they go to the big competitions, they need somebody, another, you know, they just, it's critical for them to have a person on the ground that can do the horse so they can do their job as a rider. Totally. Yeah. And, and how long is that? Um, do you usually freelance for, I mean, just for like one competition? Is it, is it usually a little bit longer than that? Like a season? What is it? Was it normally it's, range from? Yeah, it's typically just a, just a competition. Okay. Um, usually I'll just sort of show up at the competition just because those, the, these guys have, they're limited with funds. A lot of times they sure. just don't have the ability to have a full-time groom or they only have two horses and they don't need a full-time groom. Um, and so that I typically will just, you know, sort of pop in for the competition. Sometimes I'll get there a couple of days early and help 
um, with the packing and get all that sort of stuff organized and then travel with them to the competition and back. And, um, you know, if it's a long drive, it just, you know, makes it easier on everybody if there's two drivers and, you know, that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, typically it's just, it's just that I've done some overseas trip, you know, when you go overseas and you, you will all fly with the horse and go and, you know, do the entire travel part of it. So then it gets to be a little bit longer, but, um, typically it's just sort of a few weeks. Got it. Um, so what are some of your favorite products you will always have, someone would always find in your grooming box? Mm, let's see. A witch hazel is my, one of my absolute go-tos. I okay. love witch hazel. It's and great. what do you use it for? I use it on a lot of skin conditions. I love it for grooming. If you have a dark horse that maybe gets that funny dusty color, you know, mm -hmm. when you when you have a dark bay or something and that dust sort of comes up, that's great for, uh, especially where we live in Florida. Um, it's, I just, I'll curry a horse, I'll spray them with witch hazel and then I'll brush them mm. um, just to help keep their coats. It's just a good balance, um, especially with the, you know, live bacteria we have in the soil here. It just sort of helps keep, it's an antibacterial, antifungal. Um, and I, and I don't find, I find that it doesn't really affect the oils in their coats too much, um, which is good. So it, you know, they have the natural protectant of that. And then this just sort of helps to it. Um, and then, you know, other things like baby oil, Vaseline, you know, sort of that kind of stuff that you just can't really can't live without. Um, right. um, that's what else to, oh, and you know, things in my, I always have a Sharpie marker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I always have a Sharpie marker and I always have white electrical tape because that's, you can, you know, um, write stuff down on that. And, you know, that's sort of a critical thing, but, for, um, products, I'm trying to think of actual other products. That's sort of my, uh, I'm trying to think what else is in my little grooming bag that I carry with me everywhere. You... And I always carry a, I always have a rope halter with me, oddly mm, enough, okay. because I find that a lot of horses really can't cope with chains. Yeah. Um, and I don't really like them that much because I think they, when they go against them, they really go against them and it's just tough. Um, so I do, I keep a rope halter and I, sometimes I'd say to people, I'm like, I'm really sorry, I'm going to put this on. They're like, oh, I don't, I don't care. Do whatever you want to do. You know, <laughs> and you just have a little bit, I find you have a little bit more control over horses sometimes if they're being silly and they fit well over bridles if you're leading them to the ring and all that right. kind of stuff. So I do have one of those that travel with me everywhere too. Awesome. Um, do you like the, um, the oval curry comb or do you like the mitt that you slide your hand through? I actually have both. Okay. Um, I love the mitts because I think they're softer on their whole body. Yeah. Um, and you can sort of do legs and stuff like that. And like, they kind of like it, but then I actually, I like the oval one because I like to clean my brush with the oval one as I'm going, if that yeah. makes sense. And then I think if there's spots that are really um, really bad. You can use the rubber, the oval one as well, but I, they don't always, some horses don't like it. They get very sensitive, especially your little mm -hmm. thoroughbreds, you know, they are like, ow, ow, yeah. ow. Yeah. <laughs> and also too, I, I mean, I, I think currying is important too, because you can, if horses are sore or stiff somewhere, you can notice it, but it's kind of hard when you have a curry comb because they sort of wince a lot everywhere. Don't they? Sure. So, yeah. Totally. Um, so when you are, um, involved in, any type of international travel, how does that change the um, packing process or how does that change your role um, when you're going overseas? 
Yeah, the, well, the packing process is a, it, it gets to be a lot different because you get you get charged by the weight by mm -hmm. every kilo that you pack. So, and it's you know obviously the moving of all the trunks and everything. It, there's a lot of movement of it. So you really try to pack very very conservatively, and you try to think of everything that you may need or what can you buy there, that type of thing. And you sort of make small containers of things so it doesn't weigh. You know, you don't need. Uh, you know, a gallon of rubbing alcohol, you need a spray bottle of alcohol, right? So you can, mm -hmm. you can sort of figure that out. And, um, and then I, so the packing has to be quite, um, you know, try to jam everything into a couple of trunks is how you use sort of how you work it. Um, so you, you do that. Um, and then you label everything, every single solitary thing you own. Um, you put some, some sort of label on it, um, and then try to get every, yeah, try to jam everything into a couple of trunks, because like I said, it's just, ends up, you know, you get to the airport, you got to put it on the pallet. Then you get to, when you fly to the other side, you got to take it off the pallets and get it into the lorry. And then you get to the lorry and then you got to pack it, you know, so it ends up, there's a lot of movement of it. So, mm -hmm. um, that's one thing. And the preparedness of it, I mean, you try to, as best you can, anything that the horse, any kind of supplements or stuff that that's really important to the horse, you try to take with you because that's some, a lot of times something you can't, um, buy in the other country. A lot of, Grain companies here, though, you can actually um, speak to the grain company and say what is comparable over there so you're not lugging all the grain, and sometimes they don't let you bring it into the other countries anyway. So sure. uh, there's that. Um, and then just basically getting making sure that the horse is prepared for, for the travel itself, and, and you are too, you know, whether – you know, a lot of times things that people don't always remember, um, is that you, when you have magnetic blankets or lasers or any of that kind of stuff, you need to be able to charge them in a different country. Um, and that not yeah. just a, a converter doesn't always do it. So you need mm. to like an inverter or something that's, um, not gonna, you know, the wattage is so different that, um, you know, I, I bought fans one time and flew them to England with me thinking I could just put a converter and plug them into the wall. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you, those fans went real fast and smoked a whole lot, and they fried. <laughs> it was oh, really man. funny. I was like, but how would you even know that beforehand? You know, well, I, I'm sure somebody probably told me, but I was like, well, good, good to know. You know, you know. And there's other things. You know, it's interesting. Even horses flying to England and stuff. And there's, um, you know, there's a there's a time where the horses get jet lag. They, you know, but they say eight, uh, ten to ten to fourteen days is when horses sort of hit a bit of a dip and a jet lag, and not sort of what we get, but they they just get a little flat for a few days. So that's also something to keep in mind. And um, even the soil over there, there's horses that have had um, event horses that have gone over to to England that have had minor tie ups and stuff like that because the potassium and the and the salt levels are a bit different in the soil. So they, you know, to bring a salt block with you, it's just those things that you learn along the way that people have other people's misfortunes or what increase your knowledge, if that makes sense. Yep, totally. Yeah. Um, um yeah. so fast forward a little bit and now you are about to be the next um USCA or United States Eventing Association president in 2020. Yeah. So congrats on that. Thank you. Yeah, it's a little bit um it's a bit uh, overwhelming I'll say at the moment. Um it's uh it, I was as shocked as anyone that I was um asked to do it. I'm, I was very humbled and um yeah, surprised. Um, you know, I said, do you, you do realize I'm a groom? They're like, no, no, yeah, we, we, we like that. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, and I think because I do freelance and I do have a bit of not necessarily free time, but I do have, um, I can sort of define my own schedule in a lot of ways. Um, 
but my life isn't going to change that much doing that. I mean, I, I think I'll have some more conference calls and some more emails along the way, but I'll continue freelancing and organizing competitions and doing what I've done um, to, to care, you know, carrying on because it's, um, it's technically a volunteer job. I get, I get paid for the days I travel for them, but I don't necessarily get a salary. So my life, my life has to carry on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, so what, what are some things that you need to do to prepare for that? Um, a lot. <laughs> um, I do get the nice thing for me is that this year I'm, te- they technically call it president, president elect. So this year I actually get to, um, shadow Carol Kozlowski, who is the USCA president now. Um, and sort of travel with her. We'll go to the USEF meeting um, in, in in January, and I'll get to see how that goes. I've never been before, um, and sort of figure out. You know, she she leads all the um, board of governors meetings. She leads a lot of uh, committees, and just sort of uh, figure out the leadership process, the the priority levels, I guess, and and uh, try to understand. Um, better, you know, where the, where, where it is, where the organization is at the moment, if that makes sense. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, then everyone says I need to get a mission statement or, you know, mission in my head of what I want, what I want to accomplish in the year, three years that I will be president. So there's that. And then trying to figure out how to implement that as well. Right. Wow. So there's, um, there's a lot. <laughs> Quite a bit. <laughs> exactly. I think fucking stalls will be very helpful for me because that's where usually I get my best ideas. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. That is crazy. Um, so for the people who are listening and, um, think that they might be interested in, uh, becoming a groom, what, what would be some advice you have for them? Um, best advice would be to get yourself in a, in a good situation with someone, you know, unfortunately there are some riders out there that, um, we just want people to work, you know, they're just workers, um, finding a great person that will enjoy, you know, respect you as a groom, um, and what you do. And I guess my biggest thing is just ask questions, get out there, ask questions, be involved. Um, and, and just, you know, do it, um, go out there and do it. You know, there's lots of opportunities out there with, with good people and, um, but work hard at the same time. Um, you know, there's some, a lot of times you find people that want to, you know, Oh, I really want this job. I really want this job. And they get there and they don't, they don't work that hard. Um, because it, it, it is a lot of work. It's a, it's a, it's a lifestyle. It's not a job. You know, it's something that you have to be all in for if, if you're, if that's what it is you want to do. Um, it's a, it's an all in thing. So, um, yeah, find the right opportunity, ask questions, keep learning, um, keep watching, keep doing all that. I think that's sort of the best, best advice I can give. Do you feel like there is, um, some kind of some lack of knowledge in the industry about, uh, your position or about being a groom? I think there's maybe, a difference between, you know, I think some people want to be working students and that's one thing. And I think other people that want to be grooms, maybe that's another thing. I don't know. I, um, it's, a, it's actually a very good question. Um, because I, I don't think there's obviously the upper level riders realize how important a groom is. Um, most of them should. Um, but I think in a lot of ways, um, a groom sort of is a, in a lot of ways is, um, you know, they're just, you know, it comes back to the, the old movies that we say, it's like, Oh, little lad, that's a groom, you know, here, take my reins and off you go, you know, but, (laughs) um, there is actually, you know, there, I guess it takes a lot of self, um, 
pride to to know that that's not the case you know that um any rider will tell you that it's the people on the ground that make it happen i mean our job is to make sure that when those riders get on the horses that's all they're thinking about is riding their horses and everything else is taken care of um and the really good grooms are that's they've done that job and so they just get on you know riders can get on and ride and be successful and obviously it doesn't always go well that's horses for you isn't it but um that's the critical part is that is that part on the ground yeah and i think i think it's important to realize and to and to see grooming as such an important role such an important career path and i mean even what you were saying a lifestyle because i i don't think it's always um a a the first thing that comes to people's minds when they think of being a professional in the industry. Um, but I mean, it's really, I mean, if you're willing to put forth the work and the effort and to kind of give, give it all in, like you were saying, um, it's such a rewarding position and, um, it really makes the hard work worth it, especially if you are passionate about being with animals and having that knowledge. So Uh, I think that's amazing. Absolutely. I mean, one of the tough thing, you know, I, the freelancing works for me now because I traveled so much for 11 years with, with the O'Connors. And I mean, one of the, one thing that I really miss when I'm uh, freelancing and some of my other friends that are working for people they work with for a long time, when their horses do well, they are so, they're so happy, right? They're so emotionally excited and and it's a big sigh of relief for them because they you know it's all gone well and it's so exciting for them and and I and I I know that feeling for you know all the success we had when I was working for Karen and David but it and that I I miss that I I definitely miss that moment of um at the end when you're like oh wow you know it's just it it is um it's pretty it's a really special time um and I that's one thing I do miss so there's definitely a lot of reward may not be seen on paper, but there's definitely, um, a big reward there. Awesome. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, well, Max, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, you have taught us all a lot. You taught me a lot for sure. And, um, I'm just, uh, I wish you all the best and thank, thank you, so you again. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. If you got something out of this episode, could you do me a favor? I would love you forever if you could take five seconds and head over to the app where you listen to this episode and rate and review the Equestrian Podcast. It's super easy to do, and it allows people like you to find the podcast, and it allows us to find some amazing new guests and create awesome content just for you. Thanks in advance. Until next time, my name is Bethany Lee. Enjoy the ride.